The financial system in the United States, and for most of the rest of the world for that matter, can basically be thought of as an Excel spreadsheet managed by the Federal Reserve. That's all it really is. Some of the cells on the spreadsheet are assets, and some of the cells are liabilities. It's just a ledger that they administrate and that we all use. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read larger portions of things related to and around Bitcoin than the other portions that other people have read around Bitcoin and related things. That That's me. Um, I, I really took that one too far. So <laughs> we're going to get into today. Um, I said I wasn't going to have a long guy's take on it, and I kind of did have like a 20-minute guy's take. But uh, it's a really good article, really good one. Um, and I think this is an important development that will not get talked about, um, will not show up in any normie circles. And, uh, you know, if, as long as you're following the right people on social and you're following the right substacks and, you know, Lynn Alden's blog and stuff, you'll find out about this. Um, and I think it's a really important development that people don't realize. Um, but that is why I want to cover it on the show. Um, I mentioned it with John Vallis yesterday because I've been wanting to get into it. So I was like, all right, screw it. We're just going to go ahead and just dig right into this piece. And this is how the Fed went broke. The Fed is operating at a loss. How? How exactly did this come about? Why did it come about? And what does it mean? Really quick, let's thank our sponsors and we will jump right into the read. First off, you know you got your CoinKite security products to keep your Bitcoin safe. The beauty of Bitcoin is the ability to transmit value from today into the future. That is what sound money does. Cold card and tap signer and the hardware security devices at CoinKite are how you get your Bitcoin keys from today into the future securely. Bitcoin holds the value. The cold card holds the Bitcoin. And you can get 9% off of your cold card and everything else in your cart with code Bitcoin Audible. But then you got to wonder where you're going to get this Bitcoin. You're going to get it from Swan Bitcoin. And if you have a retirement account or an IRA and you want tax deferred or tax free investment into Bitcoin and you want that to be exposed to Bitcoin, you want your business exposed to Bitcoin, you want to have a team of reliable, very knowledgeable people, hardcore Bitcoiners, pure signal to understand, to ask questions, you have got to check out Swan Bitcoin and check out the Swan private service. You can go check out the Swan IRA, which is just live. They have all of the tools necessary for that, everything that I mentioned, and much, much more. Swan Bitcoin is a one-stop shop for understanding, getting into, and having an intelligent, long-term plan in the Bitcoin space. Go to swanbitcoin.com guy. They will know I sent you, and you'll find everything you need. And then lastly, there is a way to get Bitcoin that is the lowest barrier possible. Switch your debit card and get sats back on every single thing that you do in your fiat life. The Fold 
debit card, the Fold Premium Spin Plus card. You can get 1% back, 2%, up to 100% back. And I, I will say that I know that you do get 100% back sometimes because I got it back on a plane ticket to the Bitcoin Standard Conference in Mexico. And you can always just take a base 1%. If you're worried about getting a little bit less or a little bit more, you don't want to take the spins, fine. Just take 1% on everything. And you're not going to find another debit card that does that because debit cards don't give rewards. Fold is like a way to get paid sats, paid sound money for the burden of using fiat. It is fiat done right. And it's also just kind of amazing to be able to do everything in an app, uh, to have gift cards and even more sats back for major merchants. I use Amazon and Uber and Airbnb and these things when I'm traveling a ton. If you are in the United States and you are not using Fold, definitely, definitely check it out. And you can get 20,000 sats for free just for signing up and going through my link at bitcoinaudible.com fold. Links to all of these goodies will be right there in the show notes. So check them out. With that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled, How the Fed Went Broke by Lynn Alden. The U.S. Federal Reserve is now operating at a financial loss and is months away from having negative tangible equity for the first time in modern history. This article explores how we got here and to what extent any of this matters for savers and investors. Commercial Bank Assets and Liabilities A commercial bank has a considerable amount of both assets and liabilities. In order to remain solvent, the asset side must exceed the liability side, and they have various regulations placed on them to try to keep them as solvent as possible. For a typical bank, their liabilities mainly consist of deposits. Individuals or businesses deposit money at the bank, and those deposits in various forms, checking accounts, savings accounts, certificates of deposits, and so forth, are considered liabilities, or IOUs for the bank, and assets for the depositors. This serves as the source of financing for banks. They're basically borrowing from depositors at very low rates. On the other side of the ledger, bank assets consist of various loans, securities, and cash that they hold at their central bank. The loans and securities can include mortgage loans, business loans, personal loans, credit card loans, various treasury securities, and other more complex securities. To use Bank of America as an example, they have $3.051 trillion in assets and $2.778 trillion in liabilities as of the end of 2022. Their assets exceed their liabilities, meaning they have positive shareholder equity. Even when we factor out some intangible items, mainly referring to their $69 billion in goodwill, their equity is still positive. And importantly, Bank of America's assets generate a much higher average yield than their liabilities, so they have positive interest income. They pay a small amount of interest income to their depositors and collect way more interest income on their various assets. Central Bank Assets and Liabilities A central bank has a rather similar balance sheet structure to a normal commercial bank, with assets and liabilities as well. For the United States, the central bank is called the Federal Reserve. 
Liabilities of the Federal Reserve consist mainly of wholesale bank deposits and bank notes. Much like how individuals and businesses deposit their cash at a commercial bank, commercial banks deposit their cash at the Federal Reserve. These deposits, known as reserves, are assets for the banks and liabilities for the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve pays interest on them. The U.S. Treasury Department also maintains a cash account at the Federal Reserve, and this represents basically the checking account of the federal government. Reverse repo operations are also liabilities of the Federal Reserve, and they pay sizable interest rates. Lastly, all physical cash dollars are liabilities of the Federal Reserve. These are bearer assets that are kind of like having a deposit at the Fed, except they are physical and can be traded around. The Fed pays no interest on its physical banknote liabilities, and gets to set the rate it pays on its bank reserve and reverse repo liabilities. Assets of the Federal Reserve consist mainly of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and most of those came from prior rounds of quantitative easing. To perform quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve created more liabilities, bank reserves, for itself, and used those to buy more assets, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, for itself. At the time they did this, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities paid higher interest rates than bank reserves. The Federal Reserve had a small number of other items that count as assets or liabilities, but those listed above represent the vast majority of the balance sheet. In 2021, the Federal Reserve earned $100-plus billion in net interest income. Some of it went to pay for operating expenses of the Federal Reserve, and some of it was paid out as a dividend to the shareholders of the Federal Reserve, which are the commercial banks themselves. The majority of the profit was handed to the U.S. Treasury. By law, that's how it works, and the Federal Reserve is a source of profit for the U.S. federal government. And that detail is actually pretty important. A central bank is supposed to be mostly independent from their government. They are overseen by the government, but not funded by the government. If a central bank loses its independence, and for example, a president can tell the central bank to do whatever he wants, then a country has basically lost its guardrails against hyperinflation. Central bank independence, while not perfect, is an attempt to partially decentralize control of the financial system so that it's harder to manipulate for short-term political reasons, such as elections. This chart shows the Fed's assets in blue and liabilities in red, and by extension also shows how thin their equity is. I recommend going to the link to see the chart, but just so you can get an idea of what she's getting at here, the chart has a red and a blue line, but they essentially follow each other so perfectly that they don't look like two distinct lines. It just kind of looks like one brown line. <laughs> so I'll have a link for you in the show notes so you can check out the numerous graphics that come with this that help to paint a picture of what she's explaining. This chart shows the Fed's equity over time, which is the difference between the two lines in the chart above. It is currently $41.8 billion, at least on paper. How they became unprofitable. In September of 2022, the Federal Reserve began operating at a loss. This is because they had raised interest rates unusually quickly throughout the year, including on their own liabilities. 
Meanwhile, most of their assets are long duration, meaning that their various U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed securities are locked in at lower fixed-rate interest rates and don't adjust upwards. As a result, the Federal Reserve is now paying out more interest on its liabilities than it is earning on its assets. This St. Louis Fed chart shows the Federal Reserve's weekly remittances to the Treasury Department, and it looks very doomy. However, the chart is flawed because it changes its calculation method mid-chart once it turns negative. The smaller positive numbers show how much the Fed was sending every week, around $2 billion on average. But when it turns negative, it switches to a cumulative calculation and thus falls off like a cliff. Here's an adjusted version of the chart using the same data from the St. Louis Fed that I put together. It shows the weekly figures consistently in blue on the left axis and the cumulative amount since January 2011 consistently in orange on the right axis. It gives a better idea of what's actually going on. From January 2011 until September 2022, the Federal Reserve paid approximately $1 trillion in cumulative remittances to the U.S. Treasury, which was a nice revenue source for the government. Now, those payments aren't flowing anymore. In a few months, the Federal Reserve will have lost enough money from this negative net interest income that it will have negative tangible equity. In other words, its financial liabilities will exceed its financial assets. However, thanks to some accounting gimmicks, their reported equity is basically unchanged. When the Federal Reserve operates at a loss, it doesn't send a remittance to the Treasury. Furthermore, they make a note of how much they lost, and if they ever become profitable again in the future, they get to pay back their cumulative losses to themselves with those profits before they would return to sending remittances to the Treasury. So, in order for the federal government to get any part of this lucrative $100-plus billion per year income stream back, first, the Federal Reserve needs to become profitable, and second, the Federal Reserve has to maintain that profitability long enough to have paid back all of its cumulative losses. At that point, it would resume paying remittances to the Treasury. Normally, when the Federal Reserve's net income is positive, the amount of money that they owe to the Treasury Department is listed as a liability, since they are about to hand it over as a remittance. However, by accumulating losses, this liability becomes negative. And what is a negative liability? An asset. Here's how the Federal Reserve describes the issue on their weekly balance sheet report. Quote, the Federal Reserve Banks remit residual net earnings to the U.S. Treasury after providing for the costs of operations, payment of dividends, and the amount necessary to maintain each Federal Reserve Bank's allotted surplus cap. Positive amounts represent the estimated weekly remittances due to U.S. Treasury. Negative amounts represent the cumulative deferred asset position, which is incurred during a period when earnings are not sufficient to provide for the costs of operations, payment of dividends, and maintaining surplus. The deferred asset is the amount of net earnings that the Federal Reserve Banks need to realize before remittances to the U.S. Treasury resume. So, the Fed's cumulative losses become negative liabilities and thus are referred to as deferred assets. These deferred assets represent the total amount of money that the Fed gets to pay themselves back if they ever become profitable again. The Fed's Assets 
And here she just shows a statement of breaking down all of the uh, Federal Reserve banks and their total assets, followed by another of the Fed's liabilities. Right now, the Fed's assets officially exceed their liabilities by $41.8 billion. However, this includes $27 billion in deferred assets, or negative liabilities, and the deferred assets continue to pile up each week. In a matter of months, the deferred assets will exceed $41.8 billion, meaning that the Federal Reserve will have negative tangible equity. The only thing that will be keeping their assets at a higher level than their liabilities on paper are these placeholder deferred assets that represent the fact that the Federal Reserve can pay itself back first before resuming remittances, if it ever becomes profitable again. What does it mean? Alright, so the central bank that underpins the global reserve currency is operating at a loss and is about to have negative tangible equity. That's awkward, but what does it mean in practice? If we go all the way back to 1934, we find a similar situation. From 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, until 1933, the Federal Reserve was required to hold gold as an asset in order to support the redeemability of its dollar banknotes at $20.67 per ounce of gold. In 1933, the U.S. federal government ended redeemability of the dollar for gold, and in 1934, forced the Federal Reserve to hand over all of its gold to the U.S. Treasury Department. However, the problem was that if the Federal Reserve did that, it would have negative equity, since it would still have the same liabilities, but would lose a huge chunk of its assets. And if it has major negative equity, then it's not really an independent central bank as it is supposed to be. It's just an arm of the government. So in order to avoid rendering the Fed insolvent and thus dependent with that action, the Treasury also gave the Fed an equal amount of gold certificates that equaled the value of the gold they were handing over to the Treasury. It was just a trade, in other words. The gold certificates theoretically represent a claim to the gold, but are non-redeemable, and thus don't really mean anything. A non-redeemable certificate for something is like a mother giving her child a pretend toy steering wheel in the backseat of a car to have fun and think he is driving, while the mother actually drives the car. But from a legal accounting perspective, those gold certificates kept the Federal Reserve solvent by avoiding any reduction in official value from the asset side of their balance sheet, and have been held by the Fed for almost 90 years now. They're just accounting placeholders, and due to decades of inflation, the gold certificates, which were once a core part of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, are now a tiny component of the balance sheet and don't matter anymore. So what happens when the Federal Reserve's tangible equity turns negative later in 2023? Nothing. At least, not immediately. Unlike a commercial bank, a central bank can just keep functioning with negative equity and indefinite losses. Positive equity is just an imaginary line to preserve the idea of central bank independence and can be maintained with accounting gimmicks. It's like standing somewhere deep out in the wilderness right in some unguarded part of the border between Canada and the United States. The line might as well not even be there. Deferred assets are the modern equivalent of non-redeemable gold certificates. Or 
To quote Matthew McConaughey's character from The Wolf of Wall Street. It's a wazzy, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It's not fucking real. Right? All right. The financial system in the United States, and for most of the rest of the world for that matter, can basically be thought of as an Excel spreadsheet managed by the Federal Reserve. That's all it really is. Some of the cells on the spreadsheet are assets, and some of the cells are liabilities. It's just a ledger that they administrate, and that we all use. They do, however, have to follow certain laws regarding the administration of their ledger. Commercial banks manage their own ledgers, which are sub-ledgers of the Federal Reserve, since the cash assets of commercial banks are listed on the Federal Reserve's spreadsheet as liabilities. Okay, but seriously, what does it mean? The Federal Reserve's soon-to-be-negative tangible net equity won't matter at first, and most people won't even notice. However, over the long term, this is actually somewhat relevant. Firstly, the Treasury just lost a $100-plus billion annual revenue source. That might not sound like much these days, but it's about four times the size of NASA's annual budget. The federal government just lost four NASA's worth of income. Since spending likely won't be cut on anything to make up for this, this represents an extra $100 billion in debt that the federal government has to issue each year as long as this income source is gone. Secondly, this is pretty good for U.S. commercial bank profitability, all else being equal. The money that used to flow to the U.S. Treasury in remittances is now instead flowing to the U.S. commercial banking system and money market funds. The interest-bearing liabilities for the Federal Reserve are interest-bearing assets for U.S. banks, money market funds, and entities like that. Thirdly, the longer this goes on, the more it could raise political pressure. Politicians, such as perhaps Senator Warren, given her track record of prior commentary, could criticize the Federal Reserve for paying out tens of billions of dollars of interest to banks for their risk-free reserve balances, and paying a lot of interest for reverse repo activity as well. The problem, however, is that the reason that the Federal Reserve is paying such high interest on its liabilities is because that is a key mechanism for how the Federal Reserve controls short-term interest rates these days. If they want to maintain control over the price of money, this is a key part of how they do it. They're basically paying banks not to lend to try to curtail bank lending, in a manner of speaking. More precisely, they are using interest rates on bank reserves as a floor for the interest rate that banks would charge borrowers for any type of loan. By the end of this decade, I have considerable concerns regarding a fiscal spiral occurring in the United States and other developed countries, meaning that a combination of high deficits, high debts, and high interest rates on those debts will all work together to create structural inflation and money supply growth. The Federal Reserve entering into negative tangible equity is just another piece of that process unfolding, since it contributes to larger federal deficits by taking away Treasury remittances. For decades, structurally higher debt-to-GDP levels in the United States were offset by declining interest rates on that debt, 
which kept absolute interest expense by the federal government from growing. However, now interest rates are potentially trending sideways, and deficits and debts continue to pile up. As a result, absolute interest expense on the federal government's debt is breaking out after a period of consolidation. I highly recommend following the link and going to the article here just to see that chart. In a future article in the upcoming months, I plan to write about the relationship between interest rates and inflation to specifically analyze under which conditions higher interest rates can quell inflation and under which conditions higher interest rates can actually exacerbate inflation. In the meantime, for a breakdown on how money creation works in the modern financial system, my article, Banks, QE, and Money Printing, is worth a read. All right, and that wraps up the piece, again by Lynn Alden, How the Fed Went Broke. And I'll also have a link to uh, um, uh, the other article mentioned right there at the end, uh, Banks, QE, and Money Printing, which we did cover on this show. Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of time here. I just wanted to cover this piece because, A, I think it's a really important development, and as we get into a period of the United States government having a fiscal crisis, which is where I think we are moving into in the next couple of years, um, at the at the latest, I really do not think this timeline is very far ahead for us because I think what we're seeing in the geopolitical sphere is essentially the the global markets indicating a refusal to fund that which they have propped up, which is the U.S. government deficit, which has been largely, which has been a consequence of the uh, the reserve, the global reserve dilemma, where it gives this perceived exorbitant privilege, but it also forces the United States, aside from the fact that the political apparatus is going to burn through as much money as they possibly can and take as much power as they can. That's just natural politics um, and you know natural corruption of a system that has no accountability because it's spending other people's money. You know, the four different ways to spend money, politics is the least efficient and least connected to it. It's spending other people's money on other people. So that is already out the gate just a disaster of the more resources that that system has, the sicker and more rotten its society becomes. But I think this situation in particular, that the U.S. government, the the U.S. Treasury is actually losing a massive revenue stream that even if recovered will take time because they will pay back into the commercial banking system, back to the Federal Reserve for the quote-unquote deferred assets is a great example of how the these fiscal disasters, the, these fiscal imbalances hit tipping points where when things start to move, like it's essentially a feedback loop, right? It's a feedback loop to the deeply, deeply negative. And this is only going to get worse. This is why, I mean, if the, essentially if we do not have an overhaul, of the federal government of the United States. If we do not have a 80%, 90% cut in budget, if we do not rip the resources 
out of that cancerous, bloated, corrupt apparatus, it will destroy the country. It's very much like a cancer that for a very long time doesn't seem to really have any effect. You have, you know, a, a growing cancer that you still feel healthy. You might not even know it's there. You know, you literally might go for a random checkup only to find out that you have had cancer for months or even years. But then there is a point where it is consuming so many resources, so much of the health of the human body, of the organism that it is inside of, that there's this cascading collapse. There's the, you just start, systems start shutting down. It starts taking over. It just, it's consuming more than the, the organism cannot stay healthy. It just starts to die. This is where the U.S. fiscal situation has ended up. And there's no path right now for recovering it. And not even, not even an aggressive, a, a painfully aggressive, which would be the worst, like an absolute political disaster, but not even an aggressive taxation uh, scheme would do anything to make a dent in it because we're in a recession moving in, into arguably depression while at the same time being hit with lots uh, uh, with a staggering amounts of inflation inflation that's the worst it's been in 40 or 50 years which means a huge increase in taxation would undoubtedly result in far less revenue and because the government has spent those 50 years encouraging and incentivizing and manipulating the monetary base and the price of interest to make that economy far more fragile and to uh, incentivize the financial system, everybody, the incentivize the entire structure of money and of the economy to leverage itself, to make itself weaker, to make itself more susceptible to shocks. The fact we can't even sustain what we have. We can't be at zero. This is the crazy thing about the way our financial system or our monetary system works is that if we don't grow, we collapse. Now, if you operate on savings, if you operate on a sound standard, if you don't grow, you just don't grow. You just, you're just at, you end the end of the year at the same place that you ended at the beginning of the year. It's not, it's not a problem. If you are fueling this with debt, if you're fueling this, if you have to pay interest on all of the supposed quote-unquote growth that you have, in other words, it's leveraged growth, it's not real growth, then if you don't grow more the next year, you don't take on more debt, you don't have an expansive, this is why it's growth for the sake of growth. Everyone is just trying to chase themselves out of a hole. So if you don't grow at all, what you have actually done is shrink. And it's a feedback mechanism. You inevitably have to default on some loans. If you can't, if you can't cover the debt, you can't cover the leverage and the, ma the maintenance of that leverage, the interest rate on it, then you default. You cut the fat. You, you get rid of it. But it is exactly what's holding up. It's propping up the value of so many potential assets, of bonds, of all of these liabilities, because these things are backed by a money which is a liability. It is created as debt. So then the, the value of all of those things fall by 10%, 20%, 50% sometimes. Mortgages collapse. Bond prices collapse. Retirement, stocks, all of these things get hit. But what does that mean? 
That means the leverage got worse, not better, as we started clearing things out because the value of those things is what was propping up the issuance of the next set of liabilities. So it's because the house appeared to be worth $500,000 that you know, the home equity loan was leveraged or the value of the mortgage-backed securities appeared to go up. Like all of these things are interdependent. So when it collapses, well, now the mortgage of the homeowner is hugely underwater when you find out the house is only worth $250,000 or $300,000. So now they can't even get out of the leverage. Even if they sell the asset that's supposedly backing the mortgage, there's still $200,000 in the hole. So if the government attempts to tax their way out of this situation, they make the cascading problem way, way worse. And their revenue just gets a bomb dropped on it while the entire economic system and all of the people essentially starve. It just it turns into it's the Soviet Union. Either the gray market takes over or the black market takes over the economy and people do business completely outside of the purview and out, uh, outside of the official system such that the economy can actually survive and the people don't starve to death, which is what will happen. People will drop the facade of like caring about politics or the country or doing their part very, very quickly when they can't put food on the table. Sure, they'll, will, they'll demand other, other people pay taxes, but it will never be held up. The, the idea of the government raising taxes in this environment is insane. They will probably do it. They'll probably do it a lot. It'll probably hit capital gains really bad. They'll you know tax Bitcoin mining, which is what they're trying to do right now with the White House. But it will all backfire. They will not get more revenue by raising taxes into a bleeding economy. But all of this is basically to say that... All of those decades where, you know, they said, oh, the government deficit doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We owe it to ourselves. Well, now it does. Now it's going to. It's going to matter a lot. And we pretended that it didn't matter, just like we pretended that a cancer that wasn't killing us but continued to grow didn't really matter. It doesn't affect us day to day. Let's ignore it. But it's amazing how divorced, like how blind about a simple reality we are. If we are running a deficit, if at the end of our budgeting, if the money means anything at all, it means that we destroyed resources, that we made X amount and we consumed X plus whatever the deficit is and we have less at the end of the year and maybe we sucked it out of the global economy maybe we sucked it out of china maybe we sucked it out of the developing world to make up for the difference doesn't matter we destroyed resources we did not have a positive effect on the productive system of the world and there is no way no matter how long you can keep it propped up no matter how many people you can keep stealing from at the end of the day that system is going to die. The United States federal government, as it stands today, is absolutely, positively unsustainable in every way, shape, and form. But there's one thing in this article that I really, really liked, outside of just obviously the fact that I think this is a really important topic to talk about, just because... 
you know, it's interesting to see these, the puzzle pieces, you know, come together and the kind of the dominoes fall on this, especially when they appear to not be important or they're going to be completely hidden. I love that the people in Bitcoin, that Lynn Alden, that all of these people are plugged into this thing and they're watching very, very closely and that they have a very, very interesting perspective and intelligent perspective on a lot of things. I mean, not to say that everybody's right about all the guesses and predictions and ideas about why this matters or what. There's a billion complex pieces and moving parts. Obviously, nobody has a full picture of it. But I love that, and I think a lot of it is, it's partly that Bitcoin informs so much of this, or at least the perspective that Bitcoin gives you, what Bitcoin teaches you, makes you realize how important these things are, whereas the establishment and the mainstream couldn't care less about this. Like, this is never going to make it on, you know, mainstream news. And if it does, it will only be as a reaction because it blew up on Twitter somehow or something. They'll, you know, they'll do their regular regurgitate things that become popular on social media because they're just a giant redundant um, propaganda machine that rather than actually sharing the news or explaining things to people, they're a reaction to what's happening on that's already being shared and already developing on social media and uh, a way to repackage the thing in a uh, and in a political establishment uh, narrative. But I just always find it fascinating that, that you know, you gain a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of perspective on these things, and then you realize how important they are and how you can see so many of these things coming. Because when the time comes and, you know, the, the shit hits the fan and, like, something really, really bad happens with the physical situation or something breaks, it'll be like, oh, nobody saw this coming. Oh, um, it was, it was Congress from last week that did this. And it's like, no, the writing has been on the wall for 30 years. You were just too immature and selfish and arrogant to do anything about it or just too stupid, which maybe it's just all of the above. But there's one thing, a quote that I saved from this that I just thought was great because it lends itself to being such a funny juxtaposition when people talk about how Bitcoin isn't anything or that Bitcoin is intangible. It's just virtual points. Um, as if this is wildly different from the dollar. Like this is so different when we're talking about fiat currency and when we're talking about the money that we currently use, which is very tangible and very backed by something and is meaningful. I can't help but think when people make that comparison is that they just don't have anything they don't have the slightest clue how our current monetary system works if they think bitcoin being backed by nothing with the obvious implication that this is not true that this is some polar opposite or strange new turn of events for money that is just not the case for the money that they use and you know i don't even, I don't even hold it against them i mean obviously that's what any normal person would think you know water is wet you know you know the fish doesn't know it's in water fish doesn't know it's wet um and you know you just kind of <clears throat> you just kind of excuse those things away and it feels like you don't even need to know it just it's just there and it's not as if i was born with some innate knowledge of the monetary system and i was all i was just i always knew about the dollar and all this crap no of course not um so i, I mean that less of an in, as an insult and more of a just a well shit that's just the way it is but this quote I love because it's A, so accurate and B, 
just ironic, I think. Quote, The financial system in the United States, and for most of the rest of the world for that matter, can basically be thought of as an Excel spreadsheet managed by the Federal Reserve. That's all it really is. Some of the cells on the spreadsheet are assets, and some of the cells are liabilities. It's just a ledger that they administrate, and that we all use. They do, however, have to follow certain laws regarding the administration of their ledger. And I think that quote, not only is it just kind of comical to think about it like that, even though that's exactly like, it's not comical because it's like an exaggeration. It's comical because of how accurate it is um, and how disconnected the typical perspective of it or, or the worldview of the general, the general person is of the actual reality of what's going on behind the scenes. But that... Essentially, all the Federal Reserve is, is Bitcoin with no assurances. It's, it's a ledger that is perfectly and completely manipulated, perfectly and completely centralized, has no sovereign ownership whatsoever, can't really be audited by anybody except for the, the Federal Reserve has the full purview of it. They have full master, you know, pseudo root level control to do whatever the hell they want with this ledger. And we have these, these smallest, most finicky, pretending guarantees or assurance. It's just like the saddest, stupidest crap of, oh, there are laws that say they can and can't do this, which exist right up until they really need to do something other than what the laws say. And then they just come up with some new mechanism and come up with some new name and some quantitative easing and... Uh, some swap lines and like depositor guarantee and just like insurance. I mean, just bullshit, just massive amounts of bullshit and gimmicks such that any guarantee or any restriction that they had on it is meaningless if the powers that be need it to be meaningless for their benefit. But at the end of the day, it's just a ledger. It's just a ledger with no guarantees whatsoever. And it literally probably is an actual Excel spreadsheet running on like a Windows XP computer or some crap too. So anyway, I thought this was a really great piece and um, uh, something important to share and uh, I think will be an important piece of the puzzle moving forward as we try to make sense out of what is happening to the banking, financial, and monetary system of the world and what were the key points, what were the major events or shifts that led to the inevitable fiscal crisis of the United States government? I think this will be a great one for history to look back on when we're on the other side of this thing and be like, oh, wow, yeah, no, that was a really good, that was an important part of what was happening. And I massive appreciation to Lynn Alden for... Uh, doing the overwhelming majority of the work um, so that and everybody else that I've been reading and following on this like it's incredible some of the people who keep up with this and the things that they dig into to make sense of these things uh, because you know it's it's funny like so much of this is just like a series of translations like they translate the the details that they see and the kind of the the far more technical and dry 
like breakdowns of stuff and the Fed reports and all of this stuff. And then I get to read their investment newsletters and the Twitter threads and the sub stacks and all of that good stuff and then help translate it to you guys. Um, it, it's so much, it's so funny just how much information and knowledge is just a process of translating, of essentially moving information from one domain and one type to another and how valuable that simple act can be. So anyway, Anyway, just some musings on that. Um, a thank you to Lynn Alden. A thank you to uh, all you guys for subscribing to the show and listening and for being interested in these things with me. And of course, to Swan Bitcoin for having such an incredible set of resources to learn about all of, all of this stuff and to onboard Bitcoiners with pure signal and giving them the tools they need to both be able to use and have a secure long-term plan to fold for the sats back on everything in my life. It's always amazing when Bitcoin starts to rip a little bit again and you see your sats rewards just skyrocket in value, especially considering I didn't do anything for them. I just used the fold debit card. And then lastly, to CoinKite and the cold card and the tap signer for um, keeping my Bitcoin safe, for ha always having incredible Bitcoin security products for all of us to take our sats into the future with. So thank you guys so much and thank you for supporting the show. And I will catch you all on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. If history shows anything, it is that there's no better way to justify relations founded on violence to make such relations seem moral than by reframing them in the language of debt, above all because it immediately makes it seem that it's the victim who's doing something wrong. David Graeber, Debt, The First 5,000 Years this podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.